Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Hi, everyone. Before we start today's episode, Brittany and I just want to clarify that at the time of recording, we use the terminology biological female and biological male. But since recording, we've learned that it's really just best to say the terminology people assigned female at birth and people assigned male at birth. When we refer to biological female and biological male throughout the episode, we are actually referring to people assigned female at birth and people assigned male at birth. Now we will go ahead and let the original episode play from the beginning. Today we want to explore the gender and sex bias in medicine. Some questions that we want to answer. What is it? How does it negatively affect us? And the burning question of how is it responsible? Directly? Indirectly? For so many doctors telling us that our symptoms are All in our heads. Ugh. This is going to be a series, and it will probably be four episodes, in which we will discuss what the gender-slash-sex bias actually is, the lack of medical knowledge in the bodies that are biologically female, why the medical system is often dismissing women when they talk about their symptoms, the gender and sex bias in pain, the history of hysteria, and what we can do to better our care now that we know all of this information about the gender and sex bias. That sounds like a lot of information, and I am pumped to learn about it. Slightly scared because I feel like it's not going to all be sunshine and roses. Oh, no, it's not. I'm ready to equip myself with that knowledge. It's going to be thorns and thunderstorms. Oh, I mean, that sounds pretty metal, so (laughs) I'll take that. While this series will focus on how the sex and gender bias in medicine affects cis women and people perceived as women by society, it's important to point out that the sex and gender bias affects all people. It's especially important to point out that people of other genders and gender identities such as non-binary and trans are additionally marginalized and may experience similar or increased bias and discrimination depending on what other identities we hold, those intersections can further compound the biases that we face, having detrimental consequences on our healthcare. And we're going to expand further on this later in the episode. Brittany and I became really interested in this topic when we put up a post on Instagram a while back in which I expressed my frustration and how so many gynecologists readily dismiss women's pain. And we were blown away by the amount of comments that we got on that post. Like, Brittany, how many comments do we get? Like, we had over 100 easily. Yeah. 
so many fellow endo patients pouring out their stories that were very similar to mine. And Brittany and I were thinking like, how could we all be having such similar experiences, such common experiences when we all live in different parts of the world? We're dealing with different doctors. Our doctors are different ages, different genders. How is this just so prevalent and so common? So, Amy, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to know a little bit more about what you mean by a shared, common, or similar experience. Like, what is that shared, common, or similar experience we're having? Why don't we do a little bit of role play, Brittany? Ooh, that's always fun. I'll be me, and you be every doctor I've ever talked to except for my expert excision surgeon. Okay, can do. Perfect. While you're listening, let's see if you can identify with any of these responses that Dr. Brittany gives. Oh. Should we call you Dr. B? I just got a medical degree in two seconds. Dr. B, my periods are really painful. Oh, well, pain is normal. Dr. B, I don't think this is normal. It feels like someone poured acid on my uterus. Hmm, well, probably isn't as bad as you say it is. Dr. B, I really want to stress that I'm in pain. Mm, Speaking of stress, have you been under stress lately? Dr. B, I don't think we're understanding each other. I'm passing out from the pain. Well, you're fairly young, and young people tend to be overly sensitive to what they're feeling and aren't able to gauge it as well, so, yeah. Dr. B, I'm throwing up because of the pain. Well, all the tests I ran came back normal, so have you ever experienced uh, anxiety before? Dr. B, I understand all of that. I understand the tests are normal, and I know I'm not under a lot of stress, and sometimes I just get, you know, regular anxiety, but this is an anxiety. Like, I just really want to emphasize that I am in a lot of pain. Like, I am in so much pain, and I just, I'm I'm just at my wit's end. I'm in a lot of pain and I I don't know what to do. Like, I'm in so much pain and I can't carry out normal activities during my period. Well, the fact that you're not satisfied that all the tests came back normal and you seem overly insistent in trying to convince me that you're in pain tells me that what you're experiencing is likely psychosomatic in nature. So it kind of sounds like this is all in your head. How does that make you feel? Now I'm in a lot of psychological pain in addition to my physical pain. You're welcome. (laughs) I'm a terrible doctor. (laughs) Nobody should give me a medical license inside of a podcast recording box. (laughs) Well, that was really fun to do that, Brittany, but it also felt really real, and I feel like it kind of brought up a little bit of trauma from my past, so... I've decided let's never role play like that again. Okay, that's fair. I felt really terrible or saying if, it. Or if we do, I get to be the doctor. Okay. I get to have the power and the okay. authority. <laughs> that's fair. Next time you get to be the doctor. <sighs> okay, okay. So it's my turn, right? Okay. Dr. A, I'm in a lot of pain. Good. <laughs> Suffer. Ah, this feels personal. <laughs> that's just, just kidding about that last one. <laughs> no, I don't think any doctor... I don't think any doctor is having... These responses to our pain in any malicious effort or intent to hurt us. I personally don't 
blame the doctors for the way that they treated me when I was searching for my diagnosis with endometriosis because I've come to learn that the general problem is not with the individual doctors. The problem is with the overarching medical system and the gender and sex bias that permeates it. Well, the problem is that there's a subconscious stereotyping towards specific genders, in this case, women. And the medical education being taught is also rife with that as well. The way the research is conducted, everything surrounding that. And we're going to get into all of that in this episode. Yes, we are, Brittany. Or should I call you Dr. B? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that doctors even realize how harmful these kinds of attitudes are towards us on both a physical and emotional level. And I think that if they were to really understand how damaging these kind of comments are to a person that is in pain, I think that they would probably be horrified. Dr. B, how would you feel if you knew that by having that attitude towards me when I was in pain, that it led to a significant delay in the diagnosis of my actual real, extraordinarily painful disease. And it put psychological damage on me because it made me feel like it was all in my head. I lost my confidence in myself. I doubted myself. I stopped advocating. How would you feel if you knew that those tiny little words that you said, like, are you sure you're not under stress? Are you prone to anxiety? You're kind of sensitive. How do you feel knowing that that inflicted all of that damage on me? If I was careless enough to use words like that in a serious situation and inflicted damage like that on a person that caused them incredible psychological and physical pain, I as a human being would be so ashamed. I would be horrified that I could do that to somebody and I would immediately try to not ever do that ever again. So if I knew that that was something I was responsible for, I personally would immediately change. And we give Brittany the slow clap. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for the slow clap. Thank you, Dr. B. No, but I do really think that the majority of doctors, if they were to understand the kind of harm that that kind of attitude and language was doing to their patients, they would want to rectify that and change. But I think the problem is that the gender and the sex bias is so deeply entrenched in the medical system that so many of us, not just doctors, but patients too, we don't even see it because it's so normalized for us. Oftentimes, it's an implicit bias. So it's a subconscious bias that the medical professional doesn't realize that they have. And oftentimes, we as the patient don't realize that we're on the receiving end of this. I didn't even know that I was affected by the gender and sex bias until I read a book called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. This is a book by Maya Dussenberry, which Brittany and I highly, highly recommend. I felt like it was really validating to read this book because for so many of us, we're used to our symptoms being dismissed, saying that I have a painful period or that I have really intense anxiety, which are not the same thing. 
and just being dismissed that it can't be as bad as I say it is. It must not be that serious. It makes you feel like, well, then maybe it's not as bad as I think it is. And maybe I'm just weak or maybe it's because I'm not strong enough to handle this and everybody else can. And that's not at all the case. The case is that this gender and sex bias is so ingrained in how doctors see their patients that it has nothing to do with me or you or anybody listening on a personal level. It's not about us as people. It's about how the medical system has been trained over hundreds of years to see and treat us. So it made me feel validated that knowing that this was not me and here are studies proving that it is not me felt really empowering. Absolutely, Brittany. I totally agree. I mean, reading this book, first of all, it's a really well-written book. It's really well-researched and it's entertaining, like it's fascinating. And I wanted to just keep reading to like learn all the different facets of this topic. But at the same time, it was a pretty heavy read because the topic is just so serious. And it was really tough at times to read different examples, especially they talked in one part about endometriosis. And I found it really tough to read some of the different chapters that pertain to my situation or that I really identified with because in some parts I was like, I feel like they're writing this book like about me and about my life. And I'm sure many people reading that book will have a similar feeling since we've had so many common and shared experiences as women in the medical system. But I think it is a book that everyone should read, especially, especially medical professionals and especially women, because We are really affected by this sex and gender bias, and I think it's really important to bring to light this bias because it's only when you're aware of something can you begin to change it. Oh, that made me think of another book that we haven't been able to get our hands on yet because the library doesn't have it, and we get all of our books at the library. Come on, library, do it! Well, they normally get books like a couple months after they got released, although (laughs) they got the book Beating Endo within like two weeks of its release, and it was like, oh, wait, they're ahead of the curve. Hold on, slow clap for the library. Thank you, library. Well, this one they don't have yet. So we're just holding out. We're we're waiting with bated breath. But it's called Pain and Prejudice, which, first of all, I love the play on Pride and Prejudice. Pain and Prejudice, a call to arms for women and their bodies. So it has really great reviews, which is why we're really excited to read it. And we have seen people talking about it on social media. And it's really cool that it actually specifically mentions endo in some parts. So We're waiting. If you have read it, please tell us what you think of it. We can't wait to get our hands on it so that we know everything it's about. Our virtual hands on the Kindle format. (laughs) Our hands on the virtual book. (laughs) I just want to state that it's, it's incredible how the gender and sex bias in medicine is so completely pervasive. And prevalent. Disgusting. Disappointing. Harmful. And ingrained. Subconscious. Longstanding. Widespread. Annoying. Frustrating. Harmful. Darn! You lose! (laughs) Well, we all lose, but (laughs) we're all going to win because we're going to understand just how deep this goes and why it's so important that we understand that and how it affects our medical care. Well, personally, I think that the sex and gender bias has a lot to do with the reason why so many of us didn't get diagnosed for more than a decade or more. 
Well, duh. I mean, not I'm to be duh. rude, but duh. <laughs> duh, Brittany. <laughs> That's obviously why it takes so long because they didn't listen to any of us. Oh, wait. I, okay, so are you saying that if the dozen doctors that I went to hadn't brushed me off as overreacting, then I probably could have been diagnosed sooner? Duh! <laughs> well, probably you could have been recommended to somebody who could have diagnosed you sooner because I'm not entirely certain that those doctors had the proper knowledge and tools to actually diagnose you. But you may have been empowered to actually seek proper care instead of cut down so far that you just gave up. Yeah, good point, Brittany. The majority of gynecologists don't know what the heck they're doing when it comes to endometriosis. And it's not like it's their fault when you have such few lectures on it in all your years of medical school. How would you be expected to know that much about it anyway? <gasps> and this comes back to the sex and gender bias because... We'll get to that in a minute. Ha oh, spoiler. <laughs> Cliffhanger. Well, actually, I just realized that we're not going to talk about that until part two. So I guess I will just briefly say now that less is known about diseases that primarily affect the biological female body. You know, Dr. B, I had been kind of musing on if what happens to us with endometriosis. Do you mean the dismissal of symptoms, the love of diagnosing us with anxiety in spite of having done no medical health examination on us or the delays in diagnosis? Do you mean all that? Do you? Do you? Do you? Do you mean all that? <laughs> Yes. That was an excellent summary. <laughs> I tried to be as intense as it feels inside. Oh, my God. Well, I was wondering if all feel overwhelming. Things, yeah, I am kind of uh, feeling a little hot right now. I can't tell if it's the lack of estrogen or just all that information you just gave me. <laughs> well, I was wondering if all of that that Brittany just mentioned, which no need to mention again, Brittany. Thank you. You did a Are really great sure? job. Yes, you did a great job. And I was wondering if all of that was common in other illnesses that weren't endometriosis. Ah. And from the book Doing Harm, I got my answer. And guess what the answer is? What is it? Tell me. I'm waiting. I feel like I know, but I need to be certain. Yeah. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> so all of that is specific to endo, but it's actually part of a much larger problem in the sex and gender bias. And that all of the things that Brittany just mentioned, go, Brittany. And get to do it again? The dismissal of symptoms, the love of diagnosing with anxiety in spite of having done no medical health examinations on us, the delay in our diagnosis. Yes, thank you, Brittany. <laughs> well, all of that is pretty common across the board in conditions and diseases that are more prevalent in... Drumroll, please. Brrr. Women! Oh, gosh. Shocker. Ooh. <laughs> you weren't sure which one I was going to say, men or women. You weren't here all on your seat. You were like, is she going to say men? Is she going to say women? <laughs> she went for women. That was something I really liked in the book, Doing Harm. So some of the illnesses that they mentioned where the gender and sex bias was really seen was in, wait for it, endometriosis oh surprising not what is, what is endometriosis have you heard of endometriosis i've never heard of that what is that i've never heard of it that. sounds like a crunches in pain <laughs> recoils vomit. never heard of her i don't know where vomits a little <laughs> um, swallows vomit in mouth <laughs> some other conditions she mentioned are me slash cfs which is Myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Another one was POTS, possibly 
pots. I'm sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's, but if it's not pronounced pots, it should be. Because that's fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's also the name of Mrs. Potts in Beauty Aww. and the Beast. Oh, what was her little boy's name? Chip. (laughs) That'd be so nice if you had pots and chip. Ooh, what'd you have? The if you had pots, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and then if you had chip, which we're just making up now, then that would be chipmunks happily investigate pain. Okay, that took a turn. (laughs) Not sure the medical field is quite ready to accept that diagnosis. I feel like in the past, if chipmunks had investigated pain and not the researchers that had actually investigated pain, women would be a lot further along in their knowledge about pain in their bodies. And it would have been a lot cuter. (laughs) (laughs) And it just would have been a lot more sex and gender neutral. Yes, thank you. And of course, our favorite full body pain, fibromyalgia. And another condition. Ah, the lovely autoimmune disease. Keep in mind, that's because these are all more prevalent in women. And I have, like, half of these on this list. (laughs) (laughs) Problem child. It's okay. I love you anyway. I feel like a lot of us listening have multiple. This isn't supposed to be a checklist, but, like, for some of us it is. (laughs) This somehow turned into a checklist. I have that one and that one and that one. (laughs) Glitter pen red, glitter pen orange. Mine is a hot pink jelly pen, you know. I love those. Another one is vulvodynia. And let's not forget Amy's favorite. Oh, my bladder. <laughs> oh, shoot. I just peed a little. Not on my floor again. I'm sorry, Brittany. I forgot <laughs> to put the diaper on. We have the interstitial cystitis slash painful bladder syndrome. Oh, what joy. Pain somewhere else. Oh, so exciting. A syndrome of pain. <laughs> By the way, I think this would be a really great time to point out that the sex and gender bias is not the only bias that can hinder your medical care, although it is the only bias that we're really going to talk about in depth today. But of course there's more, and of course they affect almost everybody on the planet in some way. One of the biases, the biases, the bi Oh. (laughs) (laughs) One of the many biases that you could experience in your long lifetime could be a general stereotyping about your weight. Oh, yeah. If you just lost weight, you'd probably just feel better and that would go away. Doctor, my arm is broken. I think if you lost a couple of pounds, your arm would just magically repair itself. (laughs) Another bias that a person can face is from their skin color. For example, a study in 2016 showed that about half of white medical trainees believe myths that black people have thicker skin than white people or that they have less nerve endings. This incorrect racial bias can lead to a doctor underestimating the pain that a black person is in and underprescribe pain medication. Another racial bias could be subconsciously believing the incorrect stereotype often promoted in media that black people are more prone to substance abuse. And once more, this can lead to the pain of a black patient not being accurately treated or someone in pain being labeled as a drug seeker. And indeed, many studies have shown that in various settings with patients of various ages, even children, black patients are less likely to be prescribed the painkillers they need compared to white patients. 
There are many types of racial bias in medicine. And unfortunately, this was just one example of the countless incorrect ideas that doctors may have about people of certain races. Another bias that someone might face is their age. This could happen towards the beginning of your life or towards the end of your life. Oh, it's a double hitter. Yeah, you can get it when you're young. Like a lot of times when we go to the doctor at like 12 and we're like, we have chronic pelvic pain. And they're like, well, you're too young to experience that. No, I am not. It's the start of endometriosis. It's the start of it. But don't listen to me. Fine. Whatever. (laughs) I'll just wait another 10 years before I get diagnosed. No problem. I have time and all the pain in the world. (laughs) I do remember one time when I was 19 years old, I got my first kidney stone because, as I've mentioned many times in this podcast, I used to have absolutely terrible diarrhea. That was like 25 times a day. And so I would get really, really dehydrated. And then all of that dehydration was leading me to have one to two kidney stones per year. Thank you. It was horrible, by the way, not as horrible as my period. Mm -mm. So I remember the first time I went to the ER because I was having this really intense pain in my left side of my back, and it was a kidney stone. My dad said to the doctor, I think she has a kidney stone because my dad is also really prone to kidney stones. And the doctor said, she's too young to have a kidney stone. Oh, were you? Were <laughs> you? So is there like an age limit on kidney stones? It's oh, like you turned 23. Now you can have kidney stones. You're legally able to have kidney stones. <laughs> You're of okay, legal dog. age. Okay, at 16, you can drive. At 18, you can vote. <laughs> at 23, you can have a kidney stone. <laughs> Lucky me. And then as you get towards the final episode, I've been watching a lot of Netflix lately, of your life. <laughs> As you get to the final season finale, the show's ending. Oh, my. I like that. That's way less morbid than, like, dying. Like, yeah. oh, my series has a finale. It's going to come eventually one day. And I'll aim to go out on a night with fireworks. Aw. Sounds lovely. (laughs) Are we all going to have our season finale at uh, Disney World? So oftentimes people of an older age are discriminated against because as they bring complaints to their doctor, they're just being told, oh, well, that's a normal part of aging. Is it? Lies. Is it a normal part of aging to be coughing nonstop? Is that a normal part of aging? No. Well, what about I have a constant migraine? Is that just a normal part of aging? Why, yes, that is just a normal part of aging. We're the same age. Do you have a constant migraine? (laughs) That you'll need to just accept, suck it up, and live with. Oh, God. Thank you. 12 minutes is over. Next. (laughs) Another bias that many people face relates to the LGBTQIA plus community, specifically first people who are transgender. So many symptoms are blamed by doctors on hormone replacement therapy or as a result of different surgeries, and the symptoms are dismissed, even though they're not actually a result of hormones or something that's having to do with the person being transgender. There was actually a large study in 2015 where they surveyed thousands of doctors, nurses, mental health professionals, and other healthcare providers, and the results of that survey showed, and I quote, implicit preferences for heterosexual people versus lesbian and gay people are pervasive among heterosexual healthcare providers. And that is quoted from a September 2015 research article called 
healthcare providers' implicit and explicit attitudes towards lesbian women and gay men. So in that large study of thousands of healthcare providers, it was shown that there was more negative implicit attitudes against lesbian and gay people, and so implicit meaning subconscious attitudes that providers are not even aware of. And there were also explicit preferences, and explicit meaning conscious preferences for heterosexual people versus lesbian and gay people. But these were weaker than implicit preferences. Most bias is indeed implicit, be it the gender and sex bias, the racial bias, or another bias. And that means that providers are not generally aware that they have these biases or that they are affecting the care that they give because of these biases that they have. The hardest thing about bias, especially when it comes to the medical care system, is that many of us can hold more than one of these identities. You may be an older, overweight person, or you could be a gay woman of color, or so many different combinations of these things. And all of those individual biases lead to additional obstacles in receiving adequate medical care. I think that so many of us, because of the identities that we may have, have indeed faced negative experiences within the medical community when looking for medical treatment for our symptoms or our conditions. I know that I personally have felt so much trauma when searching for my diagnosis for endometriosis and just the different doctors dismissing my symptoms. I have felt dismissed, betrayed, disrespected, ignored, abandoned. I think so many of us have felt these feelings within the medical system. Something that has helped and at the same time absolutely disgusted me is the fact that so many of us, as we mentioned, have these similar experiences. And I think in a way that has helped me to know, as Brittany said earlier, that like, what I went through is because of a bias and not because there's something inherently wrong with me as a human being. Because before I knew about the gender and sex bias, I thought that when the doctors were telling me it was anxiety and maybe it was stress and it was all in my head and I was overly sensitive and I internalized all of that. And I thought that I had these faults that were inherent in me. And that was the reason why I was sick and that it was my fault. And so learning that these experiences are common helped me pull myself out of the equation and realize that it is not my fault that I'm sick and it is not my fault that I have endometriosis and that, honestly, these doctors and the way they spoke to me, it was inappropriate and they shouldn't have dismissed and ignored me. But unfortunately, that is part of the medical culture that we live in. But as I mentioned, it also absolutely sickens me that so many of us have had these similar shared experiences and when Brittany and I were researching for this episode, we were reading articles and we were watching videos on the topic of the gender and sex bias. And as we mentioned, we read the book Doing Harm. And within the book Doing Harm, Maya Dessenberry, the author, she does a really good job weaving in personal stories to make the gender bias real for the reader. And additionally, when we were looking at like the comments on the different websites and videos that we were on on the internet, we just saw so many horrible stories 
so many women sharing their experience within the medical system. You know, stories of women having a heart attack or appendicitis or an intestinal blockage or some other really awful or painful or life-threatening problem going to the ER and get sent home multiple times with labels of being a drug seeker, with being hysterical, with over-exaggerating, with prescription for antidepressants or anxiety medication, when really what they were having was a heart attack, or their intestines were blocked, or they had cancer. They had these different, extremely serious problems that were completely ignored and dismissed by the doctors that they saw. The fact that really hits this home is that many of the women in these situations only got the proper care that they required when they were accompanied by a man who advocated on their behalf about how serious their symptoms were or what they were experiencing. And that's just so devastating to me. And when these women would go back for their second, third, fourth, fifth visit with these symptoms, they would bring their husband or son or brother. And only then, when that male advocated on their behalf, were the women's experience taken seriously. Oh, okay. So wait, Brittany, let's for a second replay the role play of me and Dr. B. Okay. Okay. So I'm in the office with Dr. B. And I'm like, oh, Dr. B, I'm in so much pain. It's probably not as bad as you say it is. When you say that you're writhing on the floor, that's probably just an exaggeration. You're being a little dramatic. Dr. B, this is my husband. Husband, can you explain to Dr. B about my symptoms? Well, beautiful masculine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just had to distinguish that I was now the husband. So basically, this is the male talking. Well, my wife, she's in a lot of pain. Wow, really? You think she's in a lot of pain? I totally believe that she's in a lot of pain now that you've said it from your manly voice. That classically, historically masculine beard you have really sends the message home that you should be taken seriously. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Dr. B, for finally listening to my pain. And thank you, husband, for repeating exactly what I said. Husband, repeat after me. When my period comes, I writhe in pain on the floor. Dr. B. When her period comes, she rides in pain on the floor. She's riding in pain on the floor? That must be so horrible for you to have to watch. I mean, <laughs> for her to experience. <laughs> okay, you think we're joking, but we are. But like, this is happening. We are not joking. <laughs> like, we are not. I mean, this we, like happened to me. <laughs> I mean, like, we love joking because humor is the best weapon in the whole world against just like so many terrible things that happen to us. It's just sense of humor is. The best. Key to survival. Key. Yes. Sense of hu- I would never have survived Endo without my sense of humor. But we are not joking. And actually, we're going to get into this in part two of this series it's in the teaser. next episode. Yeah. It's a sneak puke. Uh, sneak puke. Oh, that sounds also relatable. Sneak puke. Oops. I swallowed that puke. <laughs> sneak peek. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse her. <laughs> She's excused. <laughs> Oh, oh, sir, you puked a little in your mouth? Oh, I can prescribe something for that. Antacids, antiemetic. Oh, we were here for her? No, but you have a complaint, so I want to address yours first. Right? Is that how that goes? (laughs) (laughs) 
So we'll get into, in, in part two, the reason why women's symptoms are not taken seriously is because of what, in the book Doing Harm, she refers to as the trust gap. And it's fascinating, so stay tuned. This actually happened to me when I was looking into my bladder problems. I went to three different doctors talking about my urgency and the pain that I was having in my bladder and the bloating and like different symptoms that I had. And this was when I was in my early 20s and I was not taking seriously. There were no tests on my bladder. And then my boyfriend at the time, who was like about five years older, so he was in his late 20s, he came with me to one of the appointments and he talked about the different troubles that I was having with my bladder, with the third doctor that I had already seen by myself. And suddenly, with a male there advocating for me, oh, must be real now. Oh, there's pain in your bladder. Oh, you can't hold it. Oh, you have urgency and frequently you're getting up five times a night to go pee. Why, yes, doctor, I just said all of that to you, but I guess you couldn't hear my high-pitched real tone That manly voice, voice, that's what it's got to (laughs) be. It was the beard. It was the beard. (laughs) The beards unite (laughs) to talk about women's bladders. (laughs) How fun. Then I ended up actually getting taken seriously, and I ended up getting diagnosed with painful bladder syndrome. Slow clap for the boyfriend who accompanied me to the appointment who got them to take me seriously. Thank you. We wish you weren't necessary, but thank you for using your powers for good. (laughs) All right, Brittany. So once more, we've done a lot of talking, musing, discussing, feeling horrified, feeling disgusted, feeling sickened, frustrated, and annoyed by the gender and sex bias. But it has come to my attention. (laughs) What exactly is the gender and sex bias? In medicine. I'm so glad you've asked. Well, a bias in general, just the word bias, is when you are for or against something, typically in a way that's unfair. So you're biased for something, meaning you have a proclivity or feel more positively towards that versus something else. Like if I saw a dog and a cat, I would have a bias towards a cat. Yes, and I would have the bias towards the dog. I don't know why, but sure. I don't know why you'd have a bias towards a cat, but that's where we are. Because they're superior. Yeah, that's only something that people who have inferior animals need to say to make themselves feel better. So there's our bias. We're going to have fun. <laughs> Brittany and I have just <laughs> remarkably demonstrated the bias that we have towards the pets we And keep. to be clear, I love both cats and dogs, so I don't have as much of a bias as Amy does. <clears throat> anyway, so moving on to the next <laughs> To be clear, I don't love both cats and dogs. I mean, exactly, that's my I point. love all living things and I would never hurt anything <laughs> living, but if I had to like, if there was a fire and I had to like, Save, save a cat, a cat or, or a save dog. a dog. I mean, I would save a cat. I mean, I if have you two could only arms, save so I'd one. save both. <laughs> of course you would save both. I'm the vegetarian, and I would also save all the animals, okay? Oh, oh that's terrible. <laughs> cut the knife. Just stick it in me. <laughs> that's me. No, you wouldn't cut the knife because you're a vegetarian. No, you. I would stab you. You're a human. That's fine. <laughs> that's not fine. No, that's not how that works. No, we're just kidding. But that is what a bias is. Classically, people can be biased towards or against one thing or another. So very clear example of that. So in medicine, this gender and sex bias, the gender and sex bias is one of the contributing factors as to why different sexes have varying experiences in the medical system. We're focusing on how this bias negatively affects the care for females, 
but there are also ways in which a bias can affect care for a male as well. A couple examples to kind of help understand what we mean is to show that we don't have a bias and that we recognize (laughs) both sides. Yes, we do. (laughs) It's been reported that men are underdiagnosed with depression, for example, and other various mental health conditions. They may also feel shame or be made to feel shame when diagnosed with what's societally considered a, quote, women's disease, quote, things like breast cancer or osteoporosis, for example. We definitely want to point out that the bias affects both sides. And while that's very true, we're going to specifically be focusing on what is affected on the female side. Now, you might be wondering why it's called the gender and sex bias, and this is because some of the some of the differences in medical treatment are based on our biological sex, and then others are based on our gender. Brittany. Yesy. Let's break down what we mean by a sex bias. A sex bias. You have a bias against sex because it's so painful. You don't like sex because all it does is hurt you. That's a sex bias, right? Ah, Brittany, we're not talking about intercourse when we talk about sex. We're talking about the biological bodies that we were born into. That's what I mean by our sex. Like Biological sex. Yeah, like I'm a biological female. Understood, understood. And my cat is a biological female kitty. You have two? One of them is a biological male. Good job. Way to leave him out. (laughs) I always forget about the second one. So the sex bias in medicine appears when we don't take into account the differences between the bodies of a biological male and a biological female. When we say the differences, we mean the biological differences in things like our anatomy, our physiology, our genes, our speed of metabolism, pain receptors, liver enzymes, hormones, wiring of the brain, body fat. Our enzyme levels. All of those things we just listed can cause us to have different symptoms, even if a biological female and biological male have the same disease. (gasps) I know. Also, they can cause us to perceive and experience pain differently. (gasps) We can also have higher likelihoods of disease based on our biological sex. Are you ready for the, the last one, the most fun one? And we can even have different side effects from a medication depending on our biological sex. It's just horrendous. It's just unfair. Wow. That's a lot. I feel overwhelmed. Can you give me some examples, Brittany? Can you, like, break that down? Can you make that real? Bite size. To me, can you, like, make it something that's just not so theoretical? Yes. I have an example for you. Oh, thank God. Okay, so here's an example. Did you know that biological females generally have a longer interval between our heart muscle contractions compared to a biological male? How would I have known that? No, I did not know that. (laughs) Now you do. Well, the reason I had to make sure you know this. How long is this interval? Does my heart, like, stop beating? (laughs) (laughs) No, because then you'd be dead. (laughs) Okay. It's just a longer interval. So biological male compared to biological female have different interval lengths generally compared to each other. Why is this important? Why does science have to care? Well, the reason is... Tell us why. 
The ultimate reason is because different drugs can produce different side effects depending on your biological sex. And the side effects can be really severe in some cases. So, for instance, as a real-world example, since you really want those, in the late 1990s, there were actually... Hold on. God, that was long ago. Okay, keep going. (laughs) Okay, late 1990s. Oh, gosh, we feel old. There were actually three drugs pulled from the U.S. market because when biological females took them, they showed a higher incremental risk of suffering an arrhythmia. (gasps) And that's because I know why. Why? Because of the the biological difference in the female and the male and the longer interval between the heart muscle contraction. Yes. Is that why? Yes, oh my that's God. exactly why. Oh my God, how terrible. I know. Wow. Higher risk of suffering and arrhythmia in biological females in these drugs. What happened? Yeah. They pulled them. <gasps> Yoink. They're gone. Off the market. Oh, thank goodness. Whew. And when you say higher incremental risk, you're referring to higher than in cats? No, higher than in biological males. Oh, I have another real-world example. We love those. There is a prescription sleeping pill that is very popular. It is called Ambien. And it turns out that this medication metabolizes differently in the body of a biological female compared to the body of a biological male. Ooh. This drug was on the market for... Are you ready? Yes, but I'm scared already. 20 years before anyone figured that out. Oh, Lord. Consequently, in 2014, the dosage information changed for the medication Ambien. And the biological female's dose is now half of the dose of, of that for the biological male. Wow. And the reason why is because when biological males and females took the same dose, biological females had a higher amount of this drug in their system the next morning. Whoa. Yeah. So you see their bodies were metabolizing the drug at a different speed. And what happened was that left some of these biological females at risk for driving under the influence of Of a sleeping drug. Yeah. So like driving impaired. Which you're not supposed to do. So don't take sleeping pills and operate heavy machinery. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am. So we've talked about how drugs can have a different effect on our bodies depending on our biological sex. But I also think it's interesting that symptoms can be different depending on our biological sex as well. So what I mean by that is that it's been reported that biological males and biological females have different symptoms when it comes to a heart attack, for instance. So we've seen that typical portrayal of of someone male clutching their chest in pain, but that's not commonly a way a biological female has a heart attack. Okay, if I were to have a heart attack right now in this moment, that would be awful. What might some symptoms look like for me? Well, since you're a biological female, those symptoms are less likely to be the clutching your chest in pain. Hold on a second. First of all, I'm a biological cat. Okay. Get it right. Okay, catkin. Thank you. Okay, so how do biological cats present? If you were a biological cat, you wouldn't be talking right now. So since you were a biological female. You'd probably be in the middle of running. you just keel over. But <laughs> Oh, poquiti. Oh, baby. Okay, I'll watch out for the signs of a heart attack okay, in my okay. biological female cat. Okay. But, but if you were just a biological female, human. Okay. Okay. The human, yes. The yes. Human. You yeah. may experience things like shortness of breath <gasps> or fatigue. I have been tired lately. Or 
neck, jaw, or back pain, which sound very different from what we historically have been told the symptoms of a heart attack look like. I don't have the neck, jaw, and back pain. Thank goodness. Yeah, thank God. Thank God something's going right for me I over here. I always have fatigue, shortness of breath, neck, jaw, and back pain. What does that mean? <laughs> oh Will I be able to recognize the symptoms and signs oh, no. of a heart attack if I have one? Well, the doctor may not be able to and just tell me it's a panic attack and send me home. So we don't know. <laughs> Jury's out. And of course, Brittany and I love to joke, but that is real and that is serious. And plenty of women have lost their lives as a result of the medical system not being able to recognize the symptoms of a biological female's heart attack. Here's something else. So biological females are two to ten times more likely than biological males to develop autoimmune diseases. Oh, that's sad. Our sex is cursed. (laughs) By the way, in the 50s, they used to refer to the menstrual cycle as the curse. Oh, my. <laughs> Not like everyone. Maybe everyone. I don't know. I wasn't Ooh. alive back then. But I mean, like, yeah, it's kind of a like curse. <laughs> some, some, which, you know, but not like in a joking way. Kind of like, like also the reason that the everyone's curse. alive is because we have menstrual cycles. <laughs> so, like, be grateful for us having <laughs> menstrual cycles. Okay. The blessing. Yeah. Those are just some examples about how the differences between the biological male and the biological female body can influence the way that we metabolize drugs or have symptoms for different illnesses, for example. So more and more studies are showing that taking into account the person's sex when it comes to medical treatment is important. So we just talked about the biological sex part of the sex and gender bias. Now we're going to talk about the gender part of that. So gender is a social construct. What does that mean, Brittany? Well, what I mean by a social construct is that the rules and expectations and norms are something that society has created and made into something called the role of a man and a woman. So things that are masculine or things that are feminine Colors that are considered to be for one gender versus another is all things that were decided by society and not based on anything biological. These can also vary in different cultures and different countries because it's all created by society itself. Ooh, I know some things that society says are quote unquote gender norms, which at least what U.S. society has told us for so long is that men shouldn't cry and women should wear dresses not men and boys should not play with dolls and men should have short hair and women should have long hair unless the woman is older and then the woman is acceptable to have short hair and women should be soft-spoken and sweet and feminine something that Brittany and I definitely are not can't relate yeah (laughs) we've been called tomboys our whole life aggressive domineering (laughs) bossy tomboys yeah (laughs) relatable to that (laughs) girls shouldn't speak up perhaps girls should even only speak when spoken to they should always have a smile on their pretty faces sorry i was vomiting behind you well smile while you vomit britney (laughs) doesn't make it easier (laughs) women should wear makeup And women should always look put together, but not like they try too hard. And with a little bit of sexiness. That sounds confusing. But not too much sexiness. Oh, gosh. 
kind of like a sexy, but then like the schoolgirl. Oh, now we're getting yeah. into that. I'm not. Mm-mm. No. And men shouldn't wear nail polish or the color pink. Those are some of the quote unquote gender norms that just like immediately come to my mind. And there's so many more like lists and lists and lists, because basically while I was thinking of all of that, I was thinking, oh, my God, there are a lot of rules about what is a quote unquote appropriate for a man and what is quote unquote appropriate for a woman. And I don't like it. Not one bit. No. I think what's interesting is when you really start to think about these gender norms, you really do start to see that they're just rules that we as a society have made up from nothing to tell people how to fit into this woman and man role. First of all, they're not roles, they're boxes that they (laughs) imprison us in. That's what it feels like, yes. Yeah, I'm a prisoner in my woman box. (laughs) My woman box is a prisoner (laughs) inside of me. But I think that there's two sides to this that should be considered is, first of all, the societal impression of what it means to be a man and a woman. And second of all, what things are considered manly and what things are considered womanly. Or masculine and feminine. Mm-hmm. I think nowadays we're progressing to a place where the concept of gender being in these two distinct boxes is being challenged. We're expanding our understanding of gender on a spectrum. And thank God for that. Oh, phew. So not only are we expanding what it means to be a man or a woman or non-binary gender fluid, we're understanding that not only does our gender exist on a spectrum, also what it means to be masculine or feminine or androgynous also exists on a spectrum. It allows people to like what they like because of their own personality and not because it fits some kind of construct or role that may or may not match my biological sex. Burn down the box. Burn them all to the ground. But I think this is really important because as people, we should feel free to express ourselves and we should feel free to wear makeup even if we are biologically male and present as male. We should be able to have the same ability to speak up if we are biologically female and present as as a woman. We shouldn't allow society to tell us what we can or can't do because of the way we present. Yeah, stop dictating the way that I have to act because I don't like it. I mean, yeah, have laws and rules about what's morally correct because I don't want anyone to like We don't want our anarchy and, here. Yeah, I don't want anyone to like <laughs> steal or... So like, yeah, don't take away all the rules of society, but yeah, stop dictating what I have to supposedly have to do or be because of my gender. Ugh, I don't like it. It's frustrating because these constructs are not based on reality or science. Women shouldn't only wear dresses for any scientific reason. No, that's just made up. But when you have endo belly, you must admit that dresses, okay, yeah, the dresses are really great. far more comfortable. <laughs> that's so really great. maybe that's like an unspoken endo endometriosis <laughs> rule. It's it should just be can, not should, you know? We can work with more cans. Let's give a couple of examples about how a gender bias could affect our medical treatment. We just discussed how oftentimes men are not supposed to cry. They're not supposed to complain. And this is the quote unquote supposed to as imposed by society. So these are like the gender norms. Society puts this pressure on men to be strong and masculine. And because many men feel this pressure from society, 
oftentimes they don't go to the doctor when they really need to go to the doctor because they're sucking it up and they're being stoic. And oftentimes men are not seeking help with their pain or with their chronic pain because, again, they want to be strong and they don't want to be perceived as weak. So as we explained a bit ago, these social constructs can influence what can be considered appropriate for each gender. And this can vary in different countries all over the world. Because one thing may be more appropriate for a specific gender, this can lead to different lifestyle choices that can affect a person of that gender's health. So for example, in some parts of the world or in the past, Smoking was seen as acceptable for men and less acceptable for women. So as a result, there was more smoking-related deaths in men versus women because there was more men smoking as it was seen acceptable for that gender. A last example that we want to give about how gender can influence health is, as many of us know, biological females tend to live longer than biological males. Yay. Lucky us. I'm destined to live a extra 10, 15 years. A long, healthy, painful life. Oh, mm, <laughs> Healthy. Relative. <laughs> painful, yes. Yes, not relative. <laughs> and so there's been speculation that one of the reasons why biological females may live longer is because they're better at releasing emotions. So part of the reason why they're better at releasing emotions is because society tells people who present as women that it's okay to cry, talk about your emotions. People who present as women are encouraged to go to therapy and to find acceptable strategies for coping with their stress and with their emotions. On the contrary, people who present as a man are being told that they have to be stoic and strong and bottle up their emotions and not talk about them for fear of looking weak. They should keep their stress to themselves and not bother anyone. And so because of these societal norms, people presenting as women are more encouraged to release their emotions than people presenting as men. And therefore, that could be a a factor into why biological females tend to live longer. Because they're releasing all their emotions. Thank goodness for Let's that. go have a cry fest, Brittany. Everyone should be able to cry whenever they want for whatever reason. Let's hold hands and hug and cry. Everyone in the world, allow yourself to cry. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to go for real cry now. Honestly, learning about the sex and gender differences it kind of makes you want to cry. And like I said about the book Doing Harm, I definitely had to put the book down in certain moments just because I felt so sad and just because I felt so strongly and so disappointed with our medical system and the way that it has failed so many of us because of these biases that affect our care. We just want to point out that if this topic is interesting and fascinating to you and you go off down a rabbit hole, a very dark, windy, treacherous and cold. Are you talking about yourself? Yes, I am treacherous okay. and cold. Well, <laughs> if you go down a rabbit hole with Brittany. It will be scary, but fun and exciting and interesting. Not recommended. <laughs> Darn. So if you want to go down this rabbit hole with Brittany, the amount of information 
studies and personal anecdotes that you can find on the sex and gender bias is absolutely staggering. So go down the rabbit hole. But maybe don't bring Brittany with you. Just bring some snacks. (laughs) Keep yourself safe. Since we're going to be talking about the sex and gender bias in the United States in these next few episodes, we want to point out that many of us do have a different gender identity than our biological sex. For example, we could be biological females, but we identify as men or as non-binary or another gender identity. Using inclusive language is important to us, but we do want to let you know that throughout these episodes, we may refer to men and women, not to be uninclusive, but to mirror the language of the studies or of the historical information, especially when they refer more to the cultural aspects related to gender, because cis men and cis women are primarily the populations that have been studied in the sex and gender bias. For today, we want to leave off here because we think this is a good stopping point, but we are going to be back in the next episode to continue on this very involved and fascinating and horrifying topic of the sex and gender bias. Although we said this was going to be a two-part series, but I'm pretty sure that this is going to turn into a three or a possibly even a four-part series. There's just a lot of information that's really interesting and we want to talk about all of it. And it depends how many jokes we make. We tend to make a lot. (laughs) In the next episode, we want to talk about the knowledge gap in science and why less is known about the biological female body. And we also want to talk about the trust gap and why women are not trusted to talk about our symptoms. Leading Wait, people don't trust me um, to talk about my symptoms? I wouldn't trust you as far as I can throw you, which is not very far. And we're going to talk about why that trust gap leads to the psychosomatic of it's all in your head. And we're going to do a rundown of the brief Cliff Notes version of the history of hysteria and where that has left us today. Ooh, intrigue. Yes, with the stereotypes on women and how they are when they get medical care and how they are perceived by the doctors. And we're going to look at some studies on that. And it's going to be fascinating and appalling and exciting and terrifying. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Hilarious because of our jokes. (laughs) And factual and hideous. I don't don't know. Wow, that was very intense. (laughs) We hope this episode has been really interesting for you. It was certainly interesting for us. But it has not been interesting living it. No, that's for sure. (laughs) If you like our podcast, we would love if you can leave us a rating on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. And even if you feel so inclined, you can leave a review. (gasps) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Oh, you're so wonderful. So kind. And also you can reach out to us on Instagram at in16yearsofendo. You can reach out to us via email. If you go to our website, in16years.com, you'll see there our email to connect with us. Please connect with us. Let us know your experience with the sex and gender bias. Let us know how it has affected your care Let us know how experiencing the sex and gender bias in medicine has made you feel. Let us know how many doctors dismissed you before you were diagnosed with endometriosis. We love to hear your stories, and we love to hear from you. So thank you so much for listening today. Bye!